This is not a story about how I failed at improvisation, but how improvisation made me who I am. I'm sure I've talked in this space about how I was once an improv comedy actor way back when. I took a series of classes at Improv Asylum when I was living in Boston back in my 20s. This was before I had done any writing or acting. I was just a recovering class clown in search of a hobby and friends, and I successfully found both. After completing the six levels of training, I auditioned to be part of the Improv Asylum's touring company, which was sort of like their B team of improvisers. When I was cast in the company, it was like winning the lottery. I felt seen. I had never really been good at anything before. I wasn't necessarily sure I was good at improv, but at least I was recognized as good enough. I didn't really have a performance background, so those first few shows were scary as hell, but over time I started to find comfort on stage alongside everybody else. I learned pretty quickly I wasn't the best improviser or the funniest performer. Characters were a challenge for me, especially when I'd need to cop an accent. I once tried to sound Irish, only to sound like a pirate. Same thing happened when I tried a British accent. And Spanish. Weirdly, I'd never actually tried to be a pirate, which is probably a missed opportunity on my part. My real Achilles heel, though, was music. I'm sort of tone deaf. I sound like Kermit the Frog with a cold when I sing. And I was never able to wrap my head around the improvised song rhyming structure that Wayne Brady has made legendary. This theater was really into folding musical song parodies and improvs into their shows, and each time these appeared in our show lineup, I knew I would be sitting it out or playing a part in the back, back, background. Over time, as I saw my fellow castmates brought up to the main stage to fill in, I realized I would never advance. When I was given a performance review, my greatest strength, the director told me, was how I dressed. One of the best in the cast, they said. I lasted two years, and even though the end was sad and lonely and disappointing, I quit before getting fired when the theater was about to hold auditions to create turnover in the cast. I wouldn't take back a second. Learning and performing improv completely changed the way my brain works. I think in terms of word associations constantly, which helps me with writing conversational dialogue in my plays. It also helps me in simply being conversational in life. But most importantly, that central conceit of improv, saying yes, followed by and, rather than responding to any offer with no, rests comfortably in the center of my brain. I haven't performed improv in 20 years, but it doesn't matter. I did it enough and at the right time in my life when my lizard brain was still in development. And I could never perform it again. I have too much respect for people who do to even try. But I do love to see it performed because I know how hard it is to do well. I laugh in recognition of the mistakes and the ridiculous audience suggestions because it hits my sense of nostalgia deeply. You know what moment I find funniest in an improv scene? It's when the central idea of the scene has been played out and the performers on stage are all trying to find an ending. Sometimes they nail it perfectly, and sometimes it just goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on. Subtext Podcast. My name is Brian James Polak. This podcast is brought to you by American Theatre Magazine, a program of Theatre Communications Group. This month, I'm sharing with you a conversation with Eric Reyes Liu, a friend I made back in my days living in Los Angeles. Eric and I were part of the Playwrights Union, a group of LA-based playwrights. And Eric and I were also part of a new play development program together with Moving Arts in Los Angeles. That is when 
the thought of having him on the subtext was first planted. And as these things go, years later, here we are. For those of you new here, the subtext is a monthly podcast where I talk to playwrights about our lives, writing, and what makes us tick. If you like what you hear, you can find us and follow us on most of the social networks. And you can subscribe through whichever podcast service you like the most. I think we're on all of them. If you have something to say, you can email us at thesubtextpodcast at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 505-302-1235. Okay, here we go. Eric reyes Lu is a playwright and TV writer based in his hometown, Los Angeles. He has produced and developed work locally with theaters such as Pacific Resident Theater, Rogue Machine, The Blank, Moving Arts, and Chalk Rep, and other places around the country like the Inkwell, Lark Play Development Center, rest in peace, uh, Manhattan Theater Source, George Street Playhouse, and Rattlestick. He is an alumnus of the Playwrights Union and is the artistic producing director of Chalk Repertory Theater, where he also oversees the company's new play development initiatives. Eric has an MFA in dramatic writing from NYU's Tisch School of the Arts. He has been a lecturer in playwriting, screenwriting, and TV writing at San Diego State University and wrote for two years on the teen melodrama Guidance from Awesomeness TV and Verizon's Go90. Seasons two and three can be found on Hulu. Most recently, Eric was an executive story editor on the series AJ and the Queen, currently on Netflix. This conversation was recorded way back in June 2022 over Zoom. grow up in a, in a in a home that that was artistic like did you have artists theater folks writers in in your family well not in my direct family so my parents were pretty working class people um some half chinese and half mexican and so professionally i go you know eric Liu is my legal name but i go by eric reyes Liu professionally because at a certain point this might have happened actually when we knew each other back in the day I had a moment where I was like, no one knows that I'm half Mexican and people should know that. Like that's such an important part of my identity. And, you know, my parents named me Eric. Like, so I mm. have this very Anglo-wise experience of life because I also went to private schools and, and I navigated white spaces my whole life um, because that's what my parents wanted for my brother and I to, you know, to assimilate and to kind of be accepted and to work hard. And, and, and that's where, you know, these kind of, institutions of higher learning, that's where, you know, that, that's where you did that. And there tended to be more white people, at least, you know, where, the, when I grew up. And so, um, so yeah, my parents were not artistic at all. I had, um, there were, my mom's a notorious storyteller. Like she can talk and talk and talk and talk. She'll talk to a rock and get it, you know, <laughs> lineage. And um, so I think maybe that was a little bit of like just oral, tradition, just talking, telling stories. Um, my mom liked to tell the story that she, at six months old, she would read to me. And I was starting, I probably learned to read by the time I was two. Mm. So I think just telling stories and just listening to stories was a, an important thing. But from a very simplistic, you know, my parents did what they could. And so they didn't have any, you know, they weren't, um, my parents, or my father's past, but my, you know, my mom is an amazing person, but, you know, just not, I don't know, sophisticated in the way that people think of that. And, 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 and so simple salt of the earth. And so, but I had my best friend's family was that family for me. They were, so I grew up in Downey, um, which is a suburb of LA. And they were these sort of eccentric, like Latino, Latinos, like they were my, my best friend, Alana is half Mexican and half Puerto Rican and, and, and there were trans people around and there were gay people and there were, you know, and, and they had artwork in their house and her mom worked at, you know, volunteered at LACMA and like, you know, read books. And so when I was a kid, she would always say to me, she's like, well, Eric, have you read, you know, have you, have you ever read Grapes of Wrath or have you read, mm. you know, have you, ha have you read the Iliad or whatever? And I'd be like, um, like I'm 11 years old. And, she, and she's like, <laughs> so like, Get it together. You need to. You need to know these things. So I think it was actually my trying to impress her that made me mm. a, a better red person. Like it kind of forced me because my parents were just so happy 
that listen, if I'd gone to college and didn't even finish, I think my parents would have been really proud of me. Um, you know, and 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 it's funny because my brother and I, my brother is a PhD and just got a second master's degree in science in the sciences. My brother's an immunologist who's a researcher. And, you know, and then I have this, you know, fancy degree from as MFA from NYU. So we just sort of, you know, kind of even exceeded their expectations. But um it's so funny growing up in LA and growing up, you know, adjacent to Hollywood. I might as well have grown up, you know, in Wisconsin or Ohio or anywhere that was physically far away because just mentally and you know, it was a completely different existence. Mm-hmm. You know, it was two, two different worlds. Um, you know, I grew up probably a good 10 miles from downtown LA, probably a good 15 miles from the center of Hollywood. But, you know, I wasn't really a part of that. My, ba- my best friend, though, the one I just talked about, Alana, is an actress. And she's been, you know, since she was a kid, she, she's been acting. So I think there's a sort of thing where we met and we shared common interests and our lives kind of had these parallel paths. And eventually I, I made it to, you know, to Hollywood and all that. And so, and that's a friendship that sort of lasted most of my life. And, um, which is amazing. And so I had that. So I, I, so my biological family, there weren't any artists, but it was very kind of culturally inclusive, accepting kind of environment that I got to kind of be around kind of in, in the periphery of. Do you talk about, I know you said your father has passed, but when your father was alive and, and, uh, and with your mother, have you talked about your work, your writing with them at all? You know, I didn't a lot when my father was alive. And I remember, gosh, I must have been at NYU and I came home for the holidays. So I might have been an undergrad. And I asked my parents to read a play that I'd written. Mm. And I think they just were kind of like, well, we don't get it. That's not our world. And I, and I felt, and this was more my projection than probably what was going on, but I felt like I had embarrassed them. I felt like I made them feel bad that they didn't know or couldn't kind of give me, you know, couldn't say something interesting about, but they were proud. You know, I think they were just like, you're doing this thing. We have no idea um, what it is. And, but, you know, you go to a really good school and people respect you. So we're proud of you for that. But, you know, my, I, didn't, I didn't really talk about my work a lot with my family. Um, but then my dad died and then I wrote a play about him. And so that was an interesting conversation. This is and death and cockroaches. Death and cockroaches. And I mean, I wrote a play about my entire family. Like, I mean, legit about my family. It's I'm a character in the play. And so, you know, so it was, it, it wasn't, I wasn't hiding. It's funny. We were talking about strange loop earlier. I think Michael kind of makes a, a distinction between kind of what's autobiographical and what's not. To me, it was full on, and and there were flights of fancy in that play too. There's, you know, there, there there's an imaginary cockroach. There's a wall of penises, um, which didn't exist in my actual life. Although, I mean, I wish they did. But, um, but you know, but that play, but that, but that opened up a conversation. And then when I really started working in the business in in Hollywood, I mean, I've been a playwright for a long time. But when I started working in Hollywood. I think my mom wanted to know more about it. And, and also it made it easier because my mom could just, you know, watch something on Netflix or watch something on Hulu or mm-hmm. that kind of made it a little easier. And, and, I, and, and it's funny because I think, you know, uh, one of the reasons I love television is because television was the thing that like we all would sit down and watch together and could laugh at. And it didn't, it wasn't intimidating. It mm-hmm. wasn't like, oh, you're in the theater and blah, blah, blah. And like Shakespeare and Ibsen and Chekhov, like my, you know, my, 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 my parents didn't relate to any of that, but what they related to was, you know, the sitcoms on Friday night or, mm. you know, law and order or whatever, you know, like, so I think once there was something that my mom could watch, cause my career in Hollywood didn't really start until my dad passed away. Um, uh, once she, once, when, and then once her friends could, could, could watch things that I'd written, I think it changed things. And then we kind of, it opened up conversations. I think about this a lot because, uh, you know, I've been writing for years and 
I think there is a similar reaction in my home where it's like it's intimidating and it's like the, this form of writing is 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 foreign. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think if I was a novelist, it would be really easy. Like people, everybody grows. Everybody understands novels. You know, you yeah. write, you read novels, you, you read them in school, you know, and we don't even talk about my writing. Like it's not even it's like when I'm home, it's as if that part of my life doesn't exist. And I know why it's because they don't have language to talk about it. They actively avoid it. Or is it like, is there an elephant in the room that it isn't being talked about? Or is it just sort of at this point? If there's an elephant in the room, I think it's in my head. Yeah, I'm bringing it into the room in my head. I don't think I don't think they are thinking, I don't want to talk about this. I think it's not even on the radar because it's so far removed from from their lives. Yeah. Like when in my early years I was I was doing improv comedy and they saw plenty of those shows because that's super accessible for sure. You know, and comedy is like, you know, the unifying language of performance. Um but when I started writing plays, it like suddenly we weren't we weren't talking about, you know, what I was doing anymore. Yeah, it was interesting too. Like, I mean, I think also because we didn't, I didn't grow up going to the theater. I, I found playwriting because I liked being in the theater. Like, I like being a part of the theater. I say that I was a very mediocre chorus member. And, mm. you know, like, I just like to be around those people because I was like, oh, they're, you know, they're adjacent to where I want to be. They're sort of, you know, I think I probably understood that there are other you know, queer people in the theater and, or at least, you know, open-minded weirdos. And so I think I found that's where I wanted to kind of circulate. And I did a bunch of shows in, in high school and in college, but I knew I wasn't an actor. And, and so I didn't really understand like how I would fit in, but I wanted, but I found my way. I was kind of a groupie a lot. And then it was when I found playwriting and I, um, uh, my very first playwriting professor was Eric N at this little small, tiny, you know, Catholic university in Northern California. And, um, well, that's he, jumping he, into the deep end of the pool yeah. right away. I mean, and I didn't know it, which was awesome. And he was great because he was just like, do it. Like I, cause I think I was intimidated, like how am I a playwright? And, and I felt like I studied theater, but I only studied kind of old dead white guys. And so I was like, oh, theater kind of plays are an art form that exists, existed. Like that's how it felt to me. Um, they existed in another time. And then when I started writing plays and I met this person who spoke in all these like really weird images and he sort of, and I understood, and this is the thing too, and I think there's a through line my whole life of like not feeling smart enough because I think that I grew up in this sort of suburb. I'm, you know, kind of, I'm brown. I'm sort of, my parents weren't, you know, intellectuals. And so I felt, and I went to these schools where people were, I mean, I think I got on because I was like an adorable kid. Like I had some personality, but I always felt like I sort of was like three steps below where other people's kind of intellectual sort of ability or, you know, kind of discourse was. And so I, um, which is bullshit, which I realize now is complete bullshit, but it was just, again, right. All my stuff in my head, but Eric spoke in a way that I got, like, I Mm. totally got it. And so I was a sophomore. I took his class for the first time. He would come back every, every year, once a year to teach playwriting. And so what he did for me was he said, you've already taken my playwriting class. Do you want to do just a direct, directed studies with me? And so I got one-on-one time with him and it, it changed everything. Like it was sort of, you know, it's, it's wild because I, I, I say this, I've, I've said this to people before. I was 19 years old and he um, walked in in the baseball cap and this, you know, this guy just kind of like, you know, non-intimidating guy. And he just said, pull out, you know, like pull out your notebooks and, and start writing the scene. And, you know, character A is this and character B wants this and blah, blah, blah. And then at the end he was like, okay, so who's never written a play before? Um, and we all raised our hands and said, well, you can't say that now. So get over it and do it. And now we've all, we're all playwrights. So we're going to do it. And, and in that moment, and I, and it's, you know, that sort of Hollywood moment where the light bulb went off and I'm like, and I may have, cause I was that kid, I may have actually said this out loud, 
Like, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Like when people say, oh, you know, she walked into the bar and I'm like, that's the woman I'm going to marry. Like, it, that's what it was. That's the career. This, this is the life path I'm going to commit myself to. And um, I've never let go. And, you know, yeah. What was the intention when you first like, were like, I'm going to college, I'm going to this college and <laughs> I'm going to study X. Yeah. Like, what was your original intention going on? Oh my in? God, the original idea, Brian, was um, my parents aren't, you know, I'm the first in my family to go to college or my immediate family. So like my parents aren't sacrificing all this to, you know, for me to do something I love. So I've got to do something practical. Even though I was writing back then, I was writing, you know, little like, short stories and stuff. Um, I was, I was going to, I was going to major in psychology or I did. I majored in psychology and I had an art teacher who said to me, she's like, you're never going to do that. She's like, enjoy like the first semester or what first couple terms. She's like, Eric, you are too creative. Like you're not, you're going to hate it. Um, and she was right. And so halfway through Santa Clara's on the quarter system, right? So there are these like trimesters, these like 10 week trimesters. And in the middle of the of my the winter term, I don't remember this, but my mom said that I called crying because I didn't know what it, I was like. I was so worried that I was disappointing them, and I'm like, "This is what I, you know. I I, I hate it, and you know, I, I just took a st- statistics class, and um, I'm failing. You know, I wasn't failing, but I think I got like a C plus in the class. I'm like, this is not for me because I was just like, I just want to talk to people and tell them what they should do with their lives. Like, I just want to guide people towards things." And I don't, and I think what I realized was like, it was fascinated with people, like fascinated with how, like, you know, with sort of um, just how people operate. And I think that's what it was. And I, and then I was like, oh, but I can do that as a writer. I can, you know, I can, um, I can tell people stories. I can kind of think about why someone would do something. I could like ruminate on that. And, and, and I'm like, I don't have to be a therapist to do that, to have these conversations. And so that was original intention. And then it was the spring term. And that's when I took the class with Eric and it, and it really, it changed everything. Also, I had a lifelong dream of becoming a dancer. And so I start, I studied modern dance in college too. So college was like the chance for me to do everything I had ever wanted to do. And so I took something like 22 to 25 units a term. I like really milked it. I was just like, this is an opportunity. Like I really, and I, and I didn't date. I didn't, I mean, I had come out but I wasn't dating. I, I, I was that, and we all had that person in a department or in a class that was just annoyingly earnest and eager and wanted it so bad. And that was me. I just (laughs) wanted it so bad that I just wanted to do this. I wanted my life to open up. I honestly wish that kind of experimentation was encouraged more in undergrad because like, I don't know, I come, I've come to, think the uh the the value of a bachelor's degree is kind of equal right like a bachelor's degree is like a bachelor's degree um and uh why not dabble why not encourage that like why not put that into curriculum um because your bachelor's degree is as likely to get you a job any job regardless of what your degree is as it doesn't matter i know when people get really specific about well, I'm going to major in this really, you know, I'm going to make, even when people are like, I'm going to major in screenwriting, you know, as an undergrad, I'm like, go read books. Yeah. Like, go do something. Else. Like I was an English major. I, so I switched to English. And so that's, so my, my and my parents, I think I, we could convince my dad that that was sort of a thing. If you were nudged into that playwriting class or like, did somebody say, this is a class you're going to take? Or did you just, was it just sort of like a leap of faith? It was a leap of faith. I was like, that sounds cool they don't offer that they they offer it once a year like that's that sounds neat and i think even at that point they were only offering there was eric's first year there so they were only offering it every other year and so i was like well i should take it you know i've been i have upper division credits i can start to you know i'm i'm a sophomore but i can you know whatever and um and that's what happened and it just kind of i mean it really was so i had gotten into berkeley uc berkeley and I thought I was going to go there because I was like, well, why wouldn't I go to UC Berkeley? Like, it's such a fuck, you know, it, it, it's a prestigious school. Why wouldn't I go? And I got in like, and then two weeks before I had to make a decision, I was like, what am I going to do? I was also very shy at mm. 17 years old, 18 years old. 
So I thought, well, what am I going to, I'm going to get swallowed up. And so if I go to a school that's small, that's sort of similar to high school, I mean, it was bigger than that, but I wanted my teachers to know me. And so I didn't really, so I, that was a leap of faith as well, like going to Santa Clara. I'd gone to a Jesuit high school. Santa Clara's a Jesuit university. I trusted the Jesuits, uh, <laughs> um, at least, uh, <laughs> um, you know, it's a good education. And so, um, but anyway, I, um, but it wasn't until I took that class with Eric that I kind of understood why I'd come to Santa Clara. Do you remember what you were writing? When In you had class. that, when you had that moment where you're like, oh, this is the thing I'm going to do. I mean, oh, you mean like that little exercise? Like what the thing like, was? Like, like, was I what was it? What was it about the stuff that you were actually writing that that made you realize that this was who you are? The playwriting was where yeah. it was at. Um, it was really an excuse to be in the theater. So I'm okay. a writer, right? So I was writing short stories. I'm like, oh, I can write if I can write for the theater then I have an excuse to get actors to come hang out with me. I have an excuse for people to like, you know, and there wasn't, playwriting wasn't a track. It wasn't a thing. So it was just sort of an elective that people took. And then I don't, I don't know if I was so conscious of this, but what happened was it really distinguished me in the department. And I was a theater minor. And I, what I was saying before too, I was like the most eager person alive. And so um, I had, made them my senior year they did these acting recitals for like actors got to do recitals and i remember my senior year i said i marched to the head of the, of the department i said well i want to do a recital and he said well eric minors don't get to do recitals and i said and you know and, and bear, as an embarrassment to myself i said well i don't really understand like you have all these people who are probably never going to do this for a living anyway and don't really give a shit and i'm coming into your office and i really i was again i was that yeah. guy and I, and, and I, I care, it. like I have all this passion and you're, and because of some technicality, because you haven't done it before because of the rules, you won't let me do it. And you said, okay, well, I'll make you a deal. You can't use the black box theater. You can use the rehearsal room. You're not gonna have any lights. It's gotta be at like 4.30 on the, in the <laughs> afternoon on the Thursday. I'll take it, you know, like it was right, that, yeah. like, I'll do it. And, um, and my recital was basically, I'd wrote, I'd written poetry. It was officially my poetry, re senior poetry reading. So I had, I wrote poems, set them to music and dance. And that was my recital. And, um, and it was kind of in my mind, the culmination of everything that I've worked on in college. And, um, and I was writing theater that I was writing a lot of dance theater. I wasn't, I wasn't writing a lot of things that were super narrative. Um, I was writing a lot of things that were, you know, that had a lot of Im image imagery and like, you know, that were poetic and all that. Um, Cause again, I think that felt really smart to me. And, mm -hmm. um, and I think that, you know, and I think that I think some of that work was probably silly in some ways. Um, I became a sillier writer later on, but but it was just sort of a way to express my I just I just wanted to express myself. Yeah. Was your was your family coming up to see these no. performances? No, wah wah. No, <laughs> they weren't because it didn't mean. And I think that was sort of the you know, that made me not not want to share stuff with them, too. Like, I can't blame them for it. I think I just part of it also felt like this is mine and this is mm. kind of this is for me and i think that's what that's what was cool at the time i mm. I, I part of it was like well if you don't want to talk about it well i don't want to share it like i, I just kind of you know i got bratty about it and um but it felt like because i had a whole different world up there i wasn't even out to my family in when i was in college i was fully out in college but i created this whole world and this whole community and I was like, if my family comes in, they're going to judge it or they're going to, I was just in my head about it. They're, 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 they're going to spoil it for me. I think that's how I felt. Did you, were you connecting your sexuality with your art? Like these two things are, if you, yeah. if you revealed one, like if you, you would, it would be like revealing all of you. If oh yeah, one, yeah, 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 yeah. I wrote, um, I wrote the, <laughs> the first thing I wrote in Eric's class that first time was a one act musical about lounge singers um and 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 again this is such an eric thing to do i said well i don't i think i want to write a musical but i don't write music and he said okay we'll just sing into a voice you know like a voice memo or a voice recorder or whatever and then you hand it what you'll do is eric you'll hand i'm like i can't sing and, he, and he's like well then you hand it to people who can sing and they'll figure it out 
and that's sort of how I wrote a musical. Um, and uh, and then I wrote a play about a very inappropriate sexual relationship between an older man and a younger man, which is kind of based on some stuff that happened to me when I was a kid. So my sexuality made its way into it. And then I had a huge crush on kind of my straight best friend who was also a ballet dancer. And so um, we, I was just talking to a friend about this to, uh, last week because I went, I, I drove through um, the area to kind of see some old friends. And I was also that kid who played out all his like drama on stage. So there was this like piece that I'd written about this relationship that we had. And so he was in it. I put him in it. And then he did this like dance with this like pot of dough with me and this partner dance. And then his girlfriend at the time who became his wife was watching this all happen. And like, it was, I mean, I was, you know, I, I was a glutton for punishment. I just sort of wanted, I was very dramatic, dramatic. Yeah, for sure. I love how you created the circumstance that puts you in like a kind of intimate situation with him. Yeah. In dance. I mean, that's one of the more intimate, you know, ways to perform with another person, right? There's so much physical touch that's there. For sure. And I think that, you know, I said earlier, I wasn't really much of an actor, but I felt like movement. I could, if I didn't have to speak, I mm. felt comfortable on stage. And so, and I did, I choreographed, I, you know, like I started studying dance in college, I choreographed stuff. I, so that was, again, we were talking about this earlier. Like it was sort of this experimentation. It was this full, it's funny what I do now. Everything is so, you know, like, my play is less so, but my other stuff is so narrative and so structured and whatever. But I started, um, I started writing these, like, wild dance plays. Mm. What was your, what was the plan coming out of school? Uh, <laughs> I'm none. I don't know. It was sort of like, I, the reason I moved to Portland after school was because I decided that I had, been given such a gift to be able to study that I felt like I needed to give back in some way. So I did what was called the Jesuit Volunteer Corps, which is kind of like AmeriCorps. Mm. And I, I volunteered for a year, lived in like community with other volunteers. And um, my job was I ran an after school arts education program for runaway kids in Portland. And so that was the, the plan was to take a year off because I was like, you know, I'm going to go have this career. Maybe I should go do something that sort of gives me life experience. And I should go do something that's sort mm. of, I should take a break. And, um, and so that's what I did the first year. And then the second year I lived in Portland, I worked for like a huge, um, cause Nike's in Portland. So I worked for their ad agency and did. And that I think was a little bit of a precursor foreshadowed the sort of movement into, into work that blends, you know, kind of art and commerce. Um, were you yeah. mentally, while you, when you got to that job, were you mentally still thinking, this isn't my life or my future, this is just for now and in the future, my future life is I'm an artist, I'm a performance artist or yeah. writer, et cetera? Yeah, I knew that. I think I, I, I would make these declarative statements when I was younger and I would say, I need life experience. It's going to take me four years to get life experience and then I'll go live my life as an artist. But I, cause I felt like coming out of college, I didn't feel like I had anything to write about. Mm. I mean, I could write about my college crush again. I could write about whatever, like, but it didn't feel like I had any real depth. And so, um, so it, I took, four, I mean, I think it was just a self-fulfilling prophecy. I took four years and then ended up going to NYU, but I moved to New York two years before I started the program. And again, I was just like doing bullshit, you know, like tempting and, and because I wanted to be in New York, it was more, that was more important than figuring out how I was going to be a writer. Were you, were you like in your mind, a, a play, a capital P playwright already when you moved to New York? Was it like playwriting is going to be your thing? Yeah. I mean, I've probably said that to people. I don't know if I felt that internally. I still probably felt like a bit of an imposter, but yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, if people were like, well, what do you want to do? I'd say, yeah, I want to be a, yeah, I want to work in the theater. I want to be a playwright. I would say, yeah, I, yeah, that's right. So what were you, what, when you got to New York, like what, what did that look like for you? Did you have people that you were, that, did you already have like friends or some kind of I had grounding? some friends from college who moved, right? I had some friends from college who moved that the guy who I had the crush on um, moved to New York 
because he was a couple years in school younger than me. So he moved to New York that summer. The way it worked out, yeah, he moved to New York that summer right after graduation with his girlfriend. I cap surfed there for a couple weeks. And then I just, and then I had another friend from advertising had just moved back to New York. So I stayed on her couch for a while. So, and then I, you know, didn't want to leave New York. And so I met, I mean, I, I did the thing that I, like I would, I've never done it since I would never do it again. I um, met a guy out one night and uh, pretended to like him and moved in with him. Yeah, I was an asshole. Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, it was awful. And so, and I knew I was doing it, but I was like, if I don't date, I was broke. Like, and so I was like, if I, I moved to New York with like 800 bucks. Like I was, uh-huh. like, I was naive. Yeah. So I was like, you know, and then I ended up staying for six years. So I was just like young and didn't know any better. And I was just like, I got, you know, figure it out. And, um, and so I lived with that guy for probably six months and then he kicked me out because, you know, he saw he what knew. was going on. He knew. He, he knew. He knew. And then, um, and then I moved and then I, uh, got a job, um, I basically was like a live-in like um, housekeeper to this family and um, this older couple in Park Slope. And so I had a basement apartment in exchange for like 10 hours a week. I had to clean their place. And I'm much more of a neat person now. And maybe that helped, but uh, I was not at all. And I lied about that. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm super neat and fastidious and blah, blah, blah. And I wasn't. They lectured me all the time about like, listen, Eric, like, this is the arrangement if you can't do it. Yeah, like, it was that situation. And then in that, during that year, I was taking some classes, some performance classes, uh, some writing and performance classes in the city. Um, and then I ended up getting a job kind of part-time as well, and then applied to grad school. Were you, did you have, like, a community through these classes? Were you, like, connected with other playwrights and, like, you know... How were you like? How were you? How were you? How were you functioning as an artist through this period? I was sort of yeah. I was meeting people. I was functioning as an artist. I guess like through these classes, I, I would meet people who were kind of doing their own sort of work, and that was just all, all very cool and interesting and di- very downtown and like you know weird and shit. And um, but then I had college friends who were trying to make their ways as actors and people had moved during that their first two years moved to graduated and moved so i had i had a community of of like old college friends and then a community of people i was meeting um and so but it was really i mean but i also had just friends who were not creative people at all i worked in like i i worked in the business sector i worked for the french american chamber of commerce so a lot of my like social contacts were through that job um, as well. Um, and so, yeah, it was a really eclectic mix. I was sort of like having that New York experience of having people in my life that were from all walks of life and doing all sorts of like, you know, cool New York-y things. And then, yeah, and then grad school happened. And then obviously I had a huge community there. Did you fe- ever feel a pull? Through? I mean, you, you've done so many different jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, going back to that advertising job in Portland or any of these jobs you were doing in New York, did you ever feel like, like a pull? Like maybe I should explore these careers, you, you know? What scared me, what scared me was I was in my early twenties and I just landed into jobs. And I, within three weeks of this temp job at the French American Chamber of Commerce, I took over the department. I was like running events for them. And so, and then ran this, helped run this event at the plaza. And so things were happening. And I think I was a little scared of that. I was like, oh, this is happening too easy. And so it's just sort of, I'm finding myself in a circumstance. And if I let this go too long, I'm going to be some VP of whatever, whatever. And I didn't, I didn't want that. Yeah, no, you were protective of your, of your hopes and dreams. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and I think maybe naively so as well. Like I, I look back at it and like, well, could I have done the survival job and the art thing? But, you know, I was really non-compromising back then. Probably, I mean, still now, I guess in some ways, but yeah. So uh, was it just like, hey, I'm in New York. I want to study playwriting. So I might as well go to NYU. Like, was there a process behind all of that? 
Yeah, I was sort of, um, I was on my way to a meeting. I was on Madison Avenue. I was wearing a suit that someone had given me at work mm-hmm. because they're like, you need to wear a suit to work, Eric. Like you're running these things, these events. You need to be at these networking events and you need to wear a suit. So I'm in this ill-fitting suit. I'm, you know, young. I'm in my like, whatever, early, mid-20s. And I see these skateboarders. And I'm like, these young people. And, and I'm like, what am I? And I look at myself. I'm like, what am I doing? Um, I should, I should be, I'm not a skateboarder, but I, I'm a young person. I should be, I should go do a young person's thing. Yeah. So then I was like, okay, it's time for me to go to, um, to go to grad school and NYU, because it was three pronged. It was sort of, it was the only program at the time that I knew of that was at least prominent, that was sort of film TV and, and theater. And I thought, well, at least I'll pick up another discipline you know, that, or another discipline or two, like, that'll be cool. And then I applied and then I was like, and then I applied to Yale because I'm like, Yale, right? Because <laughs> I thought in my head, I'm like, that'll be perfect, you know? And, and, and I applied to two places. I was sort of, again, naive. And I was just like, these are the only places I want to go. And so if it doesn't work out, I'll figure it out. I'll figure out or I'll apply next year or whatever. And, um, and I had actually, well, I mean, I actually didn't think that I would apply the following year. I kind of put all my eggs in one basket because I was home for Christmas that year. And my dad was driving me back to the airport. And he said, I've been out of college for four years. And he said, you know, you keep talking about writing and being a playwright and you're not doing it. So I think you should just get a job. Like, because Eric, no one gets, who gets to live their dream? Nobody. And, um, and so I think you should just, let it go, let it go. And, um, and I was devastated. And um, I mean, did you, did you, did part of you agree with his advice? Or were you did like defiant? I think I was so defeated. And I think that was the end of December, I had gone to Columbia, well, this, this might give something away, but I had gone to meet, I did some informational interviews. Um, and I'd gone to Columbia to meet with the person who was the head of the program at the time. And that person um, basically looked at me like I was a piece of meat. Like I was a young, cute thing. And he kind of like looked me up and down and it made it very clear that, you know, and I was like, it was helpful kid who was like, I've got questions and blah, blah, blah. And how does the program work and whatever. And he just looked at me and he's like, so what's your background? And I said, well, I'm half Chinese and half Mexican. And he just looked me up and down and said, wow, that's a really nice combination. And I felt completely like, I felt so small. And, I, and that, and then the conversation with my dad, I was already kind of in a weird loop. And so I, it was a dark time. And I was like, if I don't apply now, and I was living in this basement apartment, so which didn't help. So I was like, if I don't apply now, I don't know if I'm gonna, I mean, I don't know if I'm gonna be around. I mean, mm. quite honestly, I'm like, I don't know if I will be here next year because I was so defeated. And so there was something in me that was just like, I've got to do it. And, um, and then I found out in that in March of whatever that year was, I found out that I didn't get into Yale and I'm like, okay, I've got one more shot. And then I, um, and then I found out that I got a phone call because Santa Clara had, I had some outstanding fee, like some $50 outstanding fee from four years ago that I hadn't paid that I didn't even know about. And so NYU had, asked for my transcripts and they wouldn't give them up. So they're like, well, he's got this outstanding thing. And so I had to call them and be like, listen, um, I will send you the check, you know, but you need to send my transcripts right away. Like I'm about to find out whether or not I get into this program or whatever. And again, I didn't think I was talking to a friend of mine. I was just like, yeah, like you're asking for my transcripts. And my, and my friend was like, if it's at that point, like you're getting it, like they're, if they're asking for your transcripts, they've made a decision. Um, and I didn't, and I was like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. I, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I was kind of not believing it. And it just seemed like such a big, as much as I sort of like, I felt sometimes what I would do is I would take a gigantic bite of something. And then I would like chew and chew and chew and figure out how I was going to swallow it. Like I kind of took a leap and then I was like, I don't know. I have to kind of like figure out how this is going to work. And so I had this like confidence and I applied to NYU but then I never thought I was going to get in. So I had gotten a, Jason Garrett was the guy who reached out to me. He was the assistant to this person at NYU. And, um, and he's like, we need your transcripts. 
So I got that all worked out. Then I get a phone call a week or two later and um, from this guy, Gary Garrison at NYU. And, and, and Jason Garrett, Gary Garrison, like I was confused, right? Like I, was, I, I thought they were the same person. And so he, he said to me, this actually happened. He said to me, hey, um, Eric, I'm just wondering if you got our letter. And I'm like, your letter? And I'm like thinking, these, these freaking arrogant mofos at NYU <laughs> are calling to ask if I got my rejection letter. How dare, like, I was so dumb. I, like, how dare they? And I said, no, I didn't get your letter. I didn't get your freaking letter. I mean, I was awful. I didn't get your freaking letter. And he's like, oh, okay, well, like, yes, congratulations. Like, he's like, congratulations, you're in the program. And I'm like, and I lit, I couldn't believe it. I'm like, you're kidding me. Like, I kept saying it. Like, no way. Like, you're joking. Like, no, no effing way. Blah, 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 blah. Like, over and over. I just couldn't believe it. And he said, no, you're, you're in. Like, calm down. First of all, calm down. <laughs> and he must have been charmed because basically I was Gary's assistant at NYU. That my student, my, my, I got a full ride to go, to go there. And um, I was his assistant. And I, you know, I, I don't know what, in what right, mind you know and and, in what world like this you know this like asshole is like fuck you like what are you talking about this is bullshit you're playing a joke on me like i just could not comprehend and then i ended up working for him um during my my uh, three years there i i love that i love that so much i know gary and and i'm not sure when these episodes are scheduled to come out but i'm scheduled to interview gary for one of these uh, yeah uh next month and uh and i just love that story like i had no idea that you had that that connection to him yeah i was his assistant and he i learned so much about producing because he was in charge of like here's the head of production there so he was in charge of student readings we had like a a workshop a first year playwrights workshop where we would bring, we had a company of actors and a company of directors that would come in and work with the writers because at Tisch, there was no cross-pollination. Like people, the grad acting program or the grad film program, no one worked together because they were their own little like, you know, entities. And so they were all, everyone was protective. So we had like a company, an acting company uh, through the dramatic writing department um, there. And so I got to audition people I got to meet with directors and interview them and see if they would be right for us. And there, and people that I know now and that are, you know, gone on to do like, you know, like Victor Mayog, Patrick Lillis, like there are lots of people that we worked with that were sort of have, you know, gone on to, to kind of bigger careers. And, um, but I met them there and, and it was great because I kind of, it gave me kind of a professional, aside from studying, it kind of gave me a professional skill set. Um, and a way to kind of understand how to kind of make, to be a, a theater maker, not just a playwright, but, you know, to produce stuff. I think there's a, there's a, a, a thought for people who haven't been to grad school for playwriting. There is a sort of thought and expectation that you're going to learn so much about playwriting. Uh-huh. And, I, and I feel like based on, you know, based on the conversations I've had in my own experience uh, going to grad school is I didn't learn a lot about playwriting you know i think i learned more about like text analysis and and the business of playwriting i would agree How about with you? like yeah, yeah I, would agree with I, I was well, well this is what happened to me i got really confused um because when you're trying to learn three disciplines at once in a short program like i was just really like okay like i'm learning right film script analysis like text you know analysis for Playwriting, I, you know, Eric was this guy, Eric N was this person who was just like, make it, do it, whatever, structure, whatever, right? And then it was like, we're studying Aristotle, we're studying the Greeks, we're studying, we're, we're studying structure, like all these things that I all of a sudden now had to sort of put together and kind of, and I think that really confused me. Like it sort of, I felt like the way that I made theater before felt less legitimate in some ways even though like i brought a lot of that with me but i felt inadequate i think most of the time i was i was there and then also learning you know the discipline of screenwriting i'm like you know that was intimidating 
um, and then the thing that changed for me when I was there was I had a professor, a TV writing professor. And again, there was another situation where it's just like, oh, I should probably take that class. Like they, that, that's a class they don't offer that often. And it was back in the day when like, I think they, uh, TV writing in graduate programs is much more of a thing now, but it wasn't as much when I was in school. So um, I took a class from this guy, Charlie Rubin, and um, and a month in, he had asked at the beginning of class that people were serious about writing for TV. And I was just like, sure, you know, like, why not? You know, um, and then about a month then he kind of pulled me aside and he said, if you're serious about it, I just think that you have the talent. I think you're, it was comedy class. I think you're funny. I think you've got the right temperament. If you want to make a go of it in LA, I think you should do it. And that's all I needed to hear. I just needed to have someone make a decision for me because I would be too afraid, right? And someone believed in me. And so I was like, sure. And then about a year after graduating, because I wanted to stay in New York for a while longer, a year after graduating, I came out to LA. But that sort of, that opened the door. I mean, I definitely would not be working in television. Oh, I mean, I probably would find my way. But, um, but that, he was super encouraging. When I, moved, when I moved to LA, I was so naive that I really thought that uh, a, a, a modicum of talent and some charm is all you need. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what, like, and then, uh, like, you, I learned rather quickly that the, none of those two things aren't uh, going to get you anywhere exclusively. What, what, when you came, when you first came back, when you first moved from New York back to Los Angeles and, and you thought that you, you might immediately be the next Sean Ryan or whatever, like, yeah. what, what did you run into? Like, what was your first, like, oh shit, this isn't going to happen. Like I thought it might, like what, what happened? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, tried to be strategic about it. And I think what I ended up working for like a high powered manager and, and I was like, great, I'll learn the business, but I'll be out of access to people. And so I'll meet people because the thing that you hear about LA is that it's about connections. It's about who, you know, it's sort of, you know, that's the cliche. So I said, well, I need to get to know people. And, and I think with that job, I stayed at that job for a long time and I was really good at it. And I was really good at the charm and the sort of the, you know, being able to talk shop and being able to be interesting and all of that. Um, but I wasn't, I was writing, but I felt like it became about all the other moving pieces. And I felt like the writing could just happen. I think that's where I was naive. I thought mm -hmm. the writing could just happen. And then, but I, what I didn't have, what I had was the writing. What I didn't have was all the connections. So I felt I had to work on that. And, um, and I've made, and, and, and a lot of those connections have kind of, you know, those have been helpful over the years for sure. Like I'm really, I'm, I, I don't regret that, uh, that decision, but, um, but I think that it's really interesting. I think that for me, you know, what I noticed was that it was a lot of hard work and it is a lot of hard work that sort of, I mean, I think to be a writer in general, like, you know, we're solitary creatures, but then you're asked to promote your, you're asked to be a promoter. You're asked to sort of be great in a room. You're asked to be great at pitching. You're at, there's so many things that aren't at all related to each other. None of these skill sets are related to each other. So you have to be good enough or convincing enough. There's one of those, one or two of those things you're going to be great at. And the other, the others are just going to have to fill in and be good enough at. Um, but you know, leave with your strengths. And I think that that's sort of what I had to learn. I had to learn how to sort of navigate that. And um, and I think ultimately what it came down to was the writing's got to be fucking amazing. And that's all different, you know. Like, and that's sort of like, and what does that mean, right? Because it's mm. sort of it's so subjective and it's so, and now we we're having conversations about sort of, you know, power structures and like, you know, who, who has the power and how, and, and good is, so it, it, you know, good is sometimes defined by certain, you know, uh, a certain amount of privilege. There's a certain kind of, something is good based on what, you know, traditionally kind of the white male gaze is deemed as good. And I think that what that did for me for a long time was it just made me feel like I needed to get better and I wasn't good. And I mm. think the more I leaned into my own story, 
the more and the more that things started to change as well. I think it I think that's helpful too. That I realized that good can mean a bunch of different things. Like, you know, and 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 um yeah, I think good can mean a bunch of different things. And it's not just one route or one sort of, you know, pathway. And so, but you have to, but I think you've got to be nice. I think you've got to be engaged. I think you have to sort you can't be kind of, you know, aloof or disinterested. You know, you have to care and um or or act like you care. But I mean it's better if you care, if you actually care. But um I think those things matter. And I think that, you know, my my playwright and friends, you know, are these amazing kind of creative intellectual minds. And then my TV friends, and then my friends who have kind of made the transition and do both are like, you know, I, I my TV writing friends are so smart about the writing and what effect the writing has to have on the audience. And I think that that's sort of, and that involves structure in a different way than it does for plays. But um, I've learned, I think, so much by just watching my friends work in that way, like, and not be, I think the great thing about doing both is that, and this goes back to the way I was raised, like, you can't be snobby about it. You've got, you know, it's all interesting, you know, like, you know, watching like, you know, different strokes when I was a kid. Yeah, those are like super dumb jokes, but like, you know, but people, uh, but we all laughed at those things. And like, you know, they made me feel something or whatever, facts of life or whatever it was when there's family matters, you know, all those things. Um, and for me, it's like, it's the communication and it's the relationship that you, have. and I think this happens with the plays where they write now too. It's for me, it's about the relationship I have with the audience. Like sort of, I, and, and not that I'm trying to please, like not that I'm trying to anticipate what they want, but, but, I, but they matter. I think that they, I, I, and, and, and I like to challenge people. So I kind of want to do something that's sort of, you know, I think my work tends to be on the funny side or have humor in it for that reason. It's mm -hmm. sort of the, right? It's the, the spoonful of sugar, mm. right? And so not that it's medicine, but it's sort of, but there might be thoughts that are a little more complicated. And if you can kind of house it in the sort of this vessel that feels really easy or fun or exciting to kind of digest, why wouldn't you do that? Mm. What does success mean to you? Oh, God, that's a huge question. Um, I started using the word successful a few years ago because for me, it was like, well, when I get this, when this thing happens, I'll feel successful. Or when I get a show or when I right, it was sort of delayed gratification. And um, and I really feel, I honestly feel like I, um, I kind of set out, I've done what I set out to do. I'm a television writer. I'm a play, produced playwright. Um, everything else that happens after this point is pretty fucking amazing. I'm a kid from, you know, like I'm third generation on both sides, but I'm a kid who, as we said in the beginning of the conversation, didn't have, my parents weren't in the business or they weren't, we couldn't have these conversations. And so I felt for a long time, I kind of did this on my own. Um, and now I realize that the storytelling traditions from my childhood are part of my history as a, as a storyteller and much more forgiving of my family than I was when I was younger. And um, so success means that I get to be in the room, that I get to have these conversations, that I'm in the arena, that I'm not just, uh, you know, I used to tailgate, then I was in the nosebleeds and now I'm, you know, I'm on the bench and I, I'm on the bench and then, or I'm going in, right? I mean, look at me doing a sports metaphor, but um, I know it's so weird. Uh, but success means that I'm surrounded by other people who are professionals, but it also means that, um, that I get to do what I want to do. And it doesn't mean that I have to be Sean Ryan. It doesn't mean that I have to have someone, my career is going to be what it's going to be. Um, but gosh, I get to be surrounded. I, you know, I get to be encouraging and supportive of other people right now. I'm you know, developing a couple of projects and I'm maybe developing a musical and, you know, and that's really cool. And that's all really sort of like flashy stuff. But, you know, just the fact that people are interested in what I have to say, I think is successful, you know, and that doesn't mean on a larger level. That just means like I get to have conversations with you and I get to have conversations with my friends. And, and then we get to talk about when it's really difficult and when it sucks and when it's sort of, 
yeah, I have other people. I don't feel alone. You know what success is? That I'm not alone. That mm. for my whole childhood, I felt like an alien and that I was alone. And, 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 and I'm in, you know, it, it's sort of the island of misfit toys. We're all kind of gathered together. And so that's success to me. Thank you, Eric, not only for the time spent talking to me, but also for your patience in getting this episode released after so many months have passed. You can find Eric and his work at New Play Exchange or follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Lululicious. This episode of The Subtext was produced by me and edited by associate producer KJ Jarbo. Thank you to Rob Weiner-Kent, editor-in-chief of American Theatre Magazine. The music from this episode is by John Bartman. The theme song is High by International Pen Pal. Thank you for listening. The play filling me up this month is Comedy Plus Time by Matt Schatz. Matt's a playwright and composer of musicals. His work is brilliant and hilarious and moving. This play is brand new, and I'm not sure it's even out there for public consumption yet, but it's great. Keep your eyes peeled for it. <laughs>